Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 377. We are in the last week of the month of Cheshvan, going into the Shredish Kislev and Parshas Teldas, so we will begin with that. This program is dedicated in memory of David ben Yecheskel, good friend, upon his yard site, 15th of Mar Cheshvan. So every period in time in the Jewish calendar, we know is not just a calendar, a uh, imaginary structure that simply helps us keep time, create schedules and appointments and deadlines. But it's actually energy. Time is energy. The Zayar says on the Posik in Bereshis where it says, that six days God created existence, the world, it should have said bisheshes, during six days, in six days, in the period of six days. It says six days God created, because the days themselves were created. Every day has its function, has its role, has its energy. So as we move from the month of Cheshvan into the month of Kislev, as we discussed at the beginning of this month, which was a transition from the rich holiday season of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shemini Atzeres, Semchosteira, and all the days in between. And we moved into a barren month, so to speak, a month that was void, devoid of any holidays. And the reason being, because that is the way we are so-called tested or challenged to bring that power into the mundane, into the regular routines of our lives, so too, as we month, move from Cheshvan to Kislev, Kislev becomes a, a month where we're going to have Hanukkah at the end of the month. In the Hasidic holiday, it begins with Reish Chedesh Kislev, then there'll be Tes and Yud Kislev, and Yudalad Kislev, and Yud Tes Kislev, of course. And all of them days that signify special events that happened in the Hasidic world, which by extension affects the entire world. So it's interesting how these months work because each one has their role and they, for us they reflect in our own lives, our own transitions and our own journeys as we move from a high point to so-called back to the routine, even though there's nothing routine but the challenge of not having an actual holiday but to elevate the so-called regular life. And then as we move into the month of Kislev and there's much in Kabbalah and Chassidus that talks about each month's particular energy. I'm going to focus on a few points, starting with Rosh Chedesh Kislev, because the other days of Kislev we will discuss in coming weeks. So Rosh Chedesh Kislev, this is the first, first day in the, of the month, the new moon, is the day when the Rebbe Tovshin Lamed Ches, when the Rebbe had a heart attack in the year Tovshin Lamed Ches, which corresponds to 1977, Shmini So a few months later, the Rebbe went home on Rosh Chedesh Kislev. And it was the day he chose to go home. So we're talking about Lamad Ches, Mem Ches, Nun Ches, Asama Ches, Ayin Ches. We're talking about 44 uh, years ago. Correct? Yeah, 44 years ago. And I remember as a bocher, I was a student in the yeshiva, big simcha. It was like a pial, a halacha and teri even. You met Ben Jgoimel when a person comes out of uh, an illness and they're back to heal and they're healed. So that depends on when they're considered healed, but the Rebbe was definitely healed, and not only that, he came back stronger than ever. So it became a big simcha, Rosh Chedesh Kislev. 
Now, no surprise, the month of Kislev is the month of Geula. That's what Chassidim call it, Chedesh HaGeula, because of the Chaga Geula of Yutes Kislev, when the Alter Rebbe came out of prison. Prison and illness are comparable, because of these are the four things when you mention Bench Gemel with the, a dangerous situation. Rosh Hashanah Chaim. So Bench Gemel on these four things, Chayla going to the Yam, Bidbar, and Abes Asurim. So when it comes out, out of prison. So in that sense, that's the connection, the different ways of being redeemed. And uh, I mentioned Tess and Yud Kislev. Tess is, is the birthday and the yardset of the Mitla Rebbe. Yud Kislev is the Chag of the Mitla Rebbe. When he came out of prison, Yud Al Kislev, of course, is the anniversary of, of our Rebbe, of the Rebbe. So Rosh Chedesh Kislev signifies some form of Geula. What kind of Geula was it? At that time, it was a matter of illness, of a heart attack and all that it brought with, and coming back to health. But if you think just like Yutas Kislev, it was the increased on a completely new level of teaching and spreading Chassidus. If you look at Chassidus Chabad, look at Chabad in general and its activities before Tav Shalom at Ches and after, you could see it. For myself, working in the Rebbe Sikh is just look at the amount of volumes. Three volumes or the maximum amount up till that point. Once you get to Tav Shemem and Malaf, four volumes, sometimes five volumes, meaning the Rebbe's speaking literally doubled. Fabrengans that would go from 1.30 on Shabbos till 4.30, went to 5.30, 6, 6.30. And the work, of course, on, on our end doubled as well. So simply in commerce, even in quantity. And obviously in quality, because in Torah you always can grow greater quality. I remember the years, there was a while the Rebbe spoke in Fabreng instead of Shabbos by day, because the doctors wanted there to be less pressure. He doesn't have to exert himself to use a mic after Shabbos. But it was very clear that Rebbe wanted to go back to Shabbos, and he did ultimately Tov Shemem. Fabrengans completely no longer Mitzray Shabbos, and the Fabrengans only grew and, and um, continued to grow throughout. So you have the, that first lesson, that you come out of a difficult situation, not only do you come back the Buri of the, to the same strength, you, you have to get, ask to something be greater or else it wasn't worth it. Like the Gemara says about the business person. If a person invests money and they come back with the same amount of money, it's not called business. It's not called a businessman. It means that you invest $100, you come back with 150 200 or more. So the same thing in Aveda, when we talk about the Neshama coming to this world, Neshama doesn't just come to this world to remain unscathed and go back to where it was but that there's something should be achieved, both quantity and quality. So when people say, listen, I'm happy my day went by without getting worse, that's sad to hear. Sometimes people, those of us that have been hurt feel that way. But no, every, even negatives have to be turned into a positive. So that's the basic lesson. In regard to the Rebbe, in regard to the Rebbe's work, which is the work of all of us as Shluchim, and this weekend is the Kinus HaShluchim, of the shluchim from all over the world that come together in a conference. So a shluchim, as the Rebbe's soldiers, however you define that term, so just as the Rebbe became stronger in his activities, we too have to use this opportunity to become stronger. And that's both an increasing in amount of learning, the quality of learning, reaching others. So the lesson is very clear from the Shchei Kislev, and all done in the form of simcha, 
Of course, Rishchidosh is like the Rish, the head that encompasses the entire month. So that extends through the month and the theme of the month of Geula, of joy, and concluding with Hanukkah, which is also exactly that. Hanukkah came from darkness. That they had defiled the Beis Amigdash and the Mizbeach and the Menorah. They couldn't find any pure oil. And then the miracle of Hanukkah, that they found the oil and it burned. That from the Cheshach, from the darkness, what was the celebration? The, the light of Teirah Mitzvah, but not just regular light, a light that's even stronger. How do we see that it's stronger? Maybe just as strong as the Menorah that was defiled before. So number one, we see it's eight Eight branches of the Hanukkah Menorah, not just seven in the regular Menorah. We see it's illuminated, it's ignited, it's lit by night and by the a place that, that radiates outside the Beis Amigdash, the Menorah was inward. And finally, the most, maybe the most, the most um, apparent way is what the Ramban says in the beginning of Parsha Ba'aleischa, that the Menorah in the Beis Amigdash, though, was a Ner Tomid, an eternal flame. Ultimately, the base of English was destroyed. And the Menorah stopped burning, at least physically. They will never be eliminated. Because throughout Golis, until this day, we continue to light the Menorah. So you see a light that came from a darkest place gets a strength, an eternal strength. Until, and of course, that until the time that the Besamidish Ashlishi will be rebuilt, and then we will have the Besamidish, the, the Menorah, and the third Besamidish. So the lesson to us is very clear. No matter what you go through in life, whatever is going on, even a setback has to be turned into a catalyst, a springboard, a springboard for greater growth, greater light. And light, of course, Neir Hashem Nishma Sodom, the flame, the Neir Hashem, the flame of God is Nishma Sodom, is the soul of a human being, and we ignite it and illuminate it and continue to warm everyone through Ner Mitzvah V'Teira Eir. So the Neshama has its, like, pilot flame. Teira Mitzvahs fan those flames because they too are flames of God. Ner Mitzvah V'Teira Eir. And we grow in that increasingly on an ongoing basis, and especially when there's a setback. So what, what are the lessons that each of us can learn from Rishchidosh Kislev for our day today? Today we also have the challenge of after Gimel Tammuz. We don't have the Rebbe here physically on our terms. So it can be seen as a, as a setback. It can be seen as a concealment. But no, it should turn like a vacuum that only creates even more energy. As the Rebbe told the doctors back 44 years ago, that he asked them, is it the vacuum or the needle that draws blood? And of course it's the vacuum. So you see a vacuum, which is a lack of something, becomes the catalyst that draws much more, more energy. As we say always in the Shabbos, when there's the Haftarah, I'll remember, we remember because your seat is empty. So when the seat is empty, you remember. When the seat is full, we sometimes can take it for granted, perhaps. Okay. So now, talking about the Kinus Ashluchim, someone writes the question. What was the origin of the Kinus Ashluchim? Was it the Rebbe's idea, or did someone present the idea to the Rebbe and he liked and approved it? Did the Rebbe say it, would take, it should take place on Rishchidosh Kislev, or did they schedule it as a homage to the Rebbe? As we know, Rishchidosh Kislev was the day the Rebbe felt better after a heart attack. He suffered a 
a few weeks earlier. Also, I want to add since, that since the Rebbe is our leader and says the tone for the community, may the Shkedesh Kisla be a day of unbridled blessings for healing, and may anyone who is ill be completely healed, even if it requires open miracles from the highest revelations of Atzmus. Amen. So, as you may know, that in Tavshin Lamed Zayin, in Tavshin Lamed Vov, Lamed Zayin, Lamed Ches, three years, consecutive years, the Rebbe sent shluchim, ten shluchim each year, uh, some married, most married, a few bochrim who were still unmarried, to Eretz Yisrael. So, with a lot of fanfare. And they become the Rebbe shluchim to Eretz Yisrael. Many of them became rabbis. The Rebbe sent, sent directives and letters of what they exactly should do there. They become part of the pillars, part of the infrastructure of Chabad and of Jewish life in Israel. The Rebbe every year would send them letters and then the Rebbe suggested and I'm trying to recall whether the Rebbe suggested or they did they definitely would get together from time to time but I believe it was in Tavshim Membeis 1982 that they had a kinus the kinus of all the shluchim and the Rebbe wrote them a letter and it was two years later the Rebbe suggested, just like there's a kinnus ha-shluchim of the shluchim in Eretz Yisrael, to make a kinnus ha-shluchim of all the shluchim all over the world. So the first year was pretty small, relatively speaking. It was only the main shluchim. But from then on, it began to grow. So it was the Rebbe's initiation. The time that it was chosen, I'm almost sure it was not the Rebbe's choice, but I will double-check on that. I know I didn't do my homework, but this question literally came in just before this program began. But, there, but it was chosen most likely for that reason. Also, you have to choose the time of the year. It's a few enough time after Tishrei. Not, and, and, and so it was chosen then. The Kinnus HaShluchis, which began later, chosen around Chav Be'i time, the Rebetzin's yard site. And ever since, that Kinnus has grown and grown and grown. In the beginning, it was a Kinnus of only the American Shluchim. Then it became a Kinnus Elami of all the Shluchim. And of course, that just added to the growth. It was uh, two years, I think, believe in that, in the year Tafshin Mem Dalit. That the Rebbe said that to establish a Shluchim office to support the Shluchim. And every year the Rebbe would deliver a Sikha corresponding to that time, the Shabbos. Later it would be called the Psicha, the beginning of the Kinus. The Rebbe was, of course, deeply involved. I remember those years as well. The Kuntus Ashlichus came out. They gathered all the Sichas about Shlichus. Then it came a booklet. The Rebbe edited Sichas in connection to the, to the Shluchim. And it is what we see today, the army of the Rebbe throughout the world coming together this year, I believe. It's almost back to the full strength. Last year was COVID. It's over 4,000 uh, people. And um, that's a bit of the history. And of course, Kinus HaShluchim, as the Rebbe explained many times, means a gathering, but Kinus comes from the word gathering together, a unity, to talk to each other. Ish es echav yazeru, one person helps the other. Whenever you have people who are doing similar type of work, and are generally friends, it just adds to the synergy. And the lesson for all of us, no matter who you are, remember, we're all Shluchim of the Rebbe, whether it's official title or not, Mi'ashliach means an ambassador, that you, whatever you do in your life, you're bringing the Torah of Chassidus and the, and, the, 
and the Aveda of the Rebbe, which is, of course, the Aveda of Chassidus in general and Teir in general, to everyone you can reach. So by an effect, everyone is that type of shliach. So once a year, doesn't mean that only once a year is your shliach. Once a year, we recharge our batteries, so to speak, and renew that commitment, each one in our own particular way. Okay. Good. So now, let's go to Pasha's Tailedus. Lessons from Tailedus. Since this week is also Pasha Tailedus, which we'll be reading the full Pasha next Shabbos. So let's address some of that. What can couples experiencing fertility difficulties learn from Yitzchak and Rivka to be blessed with children? The Teda teaches us that Yitzchak and Rivka were childless for 20 years. Then they had twins. What did they do differently in the in year 20 for it to work? And what lessons can couples today having difficulties conceiving learn from them and emulate in order to successfully have children? May God Almighty bless everyone in the community with healthy children. Amen to that. So you look in the commentaries, you don't really have a total clarity, at least I did not find, what exactly happened in year 20. We do know they prayed. They did a lot of davening. Taylor talks about it. And davening works. Now it does speak in Svarim, including the Zayat and other places, why did all the Imois have difficulties? Sarah didn't have a child till uh, 90. Rivka, Rachel, Leah was fertile, so to speak. Okay, birth relatively easily. So one of the answers is because of the greatness shamas they were bringing down. And whenever there's something of greatness, there's resistance. There are blocks. And then, of course, you break through the blocks. So they, what they did was they broke through whatever obstacles were there. And through tefillah, and tefillah that comes from the heart is going to have an effect, like the Medrash says, that the tefillah from a woman especially talks about coming from her heart, wanting to be a mother, breaks through. Now, why God responds in 20 years or five years or one year, that's the mysteries we may never know. But the bottom line, what we can emulate and learn from is you never give up. No, it doesn't have to wait 20 years. You do whatever it takes. Because the greatest thing is to bring children into this world. And if there's some resistance, again, we may not know the reasons from heaven, that doesn't mean we stop. We try whatever we can. And we absolutely believe with faith and betachen and trust that through our prayers and through our good deeds and the different zgulas that Rebbe speaks about, namely, you know, students are like children. So teaching, helping educate others, all these things are, open, are opportune methods that open up channels, the channels for birthing. So any birthing you can do in your life, doesn't, even if it's not biological, again, be mashpia on someone, teaching someone, or helping someone be taught, supporting an, an educational institution or an educational effort, these are all ways that midah keneged midah, God responds, okay, you're birthing and I will give you the power and actualize your birthing by conceiving and having a child. Now, no question that Yitzchak and Rivka did all of that in the spirit of Yitzchak's parents. 
What were they doing? They were reaching out to people. They were educating. So with that said, that's one of the lessons we learn, and the Ebishter should indeed help every person who needs a bracha to open up these channels, whatever it is that's causing them to not be opened. Ebishter blesses that everyone should have healthy child, healthy children, and demonstrate the great gift that God gives us when we have a child, that that child to do educate them and inspire them to truly be God's children that spread the light of Torah Mitzvahs everywhere they go and the light of Chassidus to everyone they can reach. Okay. So continuing the story, what do we learn from the battle of Esau and Yaakov in Rivka's womb? Okay, so she indeed then conceives and we know in her womb she had twins. And it was a difficult pregnancy as the Torah says right in the beginning of the Parsha. The Torah teaches us as I learned in Yeshiva, that we were taught that when Rivka was pregnant, when she, when she would walk past a shul, Yaakov would try to jump out, and when she walked past a church, Esau would try to jump out. Is this story really real, or just a metaphor for the struggle between good and evil within us? So it's not just a story, this, uh, this is brought, <laughs> the Rashim talks in Bort Rashi, because they both came from different type of so-called uh, roots, and this goes to the actual story of Yaakov and Esav. We see that when they're born, they're very different. No, they're twins. And the Tata would designate them, Yaakov being Ish Tom Yeshev Aholim, and Esav, Ish Mocham Yede Tzayid. One is a scholar, a wholesome, seamless, innocent so-called scholar. And, um, and Esav was Ish Mocham, a man of war, a warrior, who knew how to hunt. Very different, and they look different. Esau was covered in hair, more aggressive. More aggressive. Yaakov was much simpler in that sense. Simpler, I mean, in a good way, not having that much um, aggression in him. And then we see the story of their lives, how they both go in direction, different directions. With Yaakov focusing on Torah and serving God, and Esau becoming that hunter, the warrior. So there's much, much to be said on this, and we're going to be talking about this in a moment, because then the story, only, the plot only thickens as Yaakov basically buys the birthright. Because Esau, though they were twins, Esau emerged first. So Yaakov buys the birthright with Nezida Doshim, with beet soup, that he gives Esau on a day when he was very thirsty for exchange of giving me the birthright. And then later... In the chapter, we hear the story of the conspiracy of Yaakov and Rivka to take the blessings that Yitzchak wanted to give his oldest son, Esau. And Yaakov dresses in the garments of Esau and ostensibly deceiving his father to get these blessings. So all these stories need to be explained, what exactly is going on. You're clearly, there's something... And when you look back, even, in, as I said, in Rivka's womb... And when she said to Hashem, why is my pregnancy so difficult? He says, and this is where it all begins. And this is the answer to all these questions. You have two nations within you that are struggling and fighting. When one will rise, the other will fall. So Yaakov and Esau clearly represent archetypes of two different types of peoples, two nations. And indeed, later they would become two nations. Yaakov, the ancestor of the Jewish people. Esau, the ancestor of the Roman Western world. 
Malchus Eden, eh, that which will later become Christianity, and you see the wars that they fought throughout history. So Yaakov and Esav represent a lot more. And this is not just based on commentary. This is exactly in the verse. It says, two nations battling. So let's understand what all this means. So the fact that they were struggling in, the, in the Rivka's womb, and as the Medr says and Rashi brings, that they were like two nations, they're two nations, but they were, that Yaakov was drawn to Kedusha, to holiness, and Esav to the opposite, is just an indicator of what was coming. And as I said, the Pasuk says it, literally, that there's, so what is the story? But before we go there, I want to let's read a few more questions, and then we'll answer it all in uh, one comprehensive manner. <clears throat> Why did Yaakov have to dress up as Harry Esau to steal the blessings intended for his brother? Why couldn't Yaakov just tell Yitzhak the truth? That he bought the birthright for a bowl of lentil soup, and that now the blessings belonging to the firstborn are legally his. Another question. What justification is there for Yaakov to steal Esau's blessings? Did Yaakov feel because he was more virtuous and Esau was of the derech, so to speak, that Yaakov could use the blessing in a better way? Is there, if there is a reform shul in our neighborhood that doesn't have a mechitza and uses a microphone on Shabbos, can we break in during the night and steal their Torah scrolls and bring them to an orthodox shul that will use them better? Another, another question. Yitzchak unable to see Yisuf's true status. If Yitzchak and Rivka were equal partners and lived in the same home, how is it possible that Rivka recognized the evil of Esav, but Yitzchak wasn't able to see it and was ready to give Esav the premium blessings? And another one or two. Why couldn't Yitzchak correct himself and bless Esav with the brachas he mistakenly gave Yaakov? Sometimes if you make a mistake during davening and forget to say Yala V'yoveh in the proper place, for example, there are places where, we're, where, we can insert in, where we can insert that prayer later or we can repeat Shemin Esri. The point is sometimes that mistakes happen and when they do, we can correct them afterward. After Yitzhak realized he was tricked and gave Esau's brachas to Yaakov, why did Yitzhak just resign and say, sorry Esau, but now it's too late to correct it? Why didn't Yitzhak just say, let's start over? And then give Esav the original brachas he intended to give. And finally, why was Yitzchak not spared the pain of seeing Esav become a wicked person as Abraham was? If Hashem caused Abraham to die, to pass away at 175 instead of 180, to spare him any pain from seeing Esav and his evil ways, then why did Yitzchak live until 180? Shouldn't Yitzchak also have been spared from similar pain? And many more questions. I'm just summing up many that have come in. So I've addressed this topic in previous episodes of my life, Chassidus Applied. But because these questions continuously come up, especially when we read the chapter, and they're controversial questions, it's worthwhile summing it up again. I'll be brief. But indeed, when you look in the commentaries, and there are many different explanations of the birthright and the blessings and what right did Yaakov have, but frankly, when you read them all, it's all is leaving something missing. Can we just go? We have a brother who's not, let's say for argument's sake, he's completely wandered away from, uh, from Kedusha, from Teir Mitzvah. Can we just go and take his blessings and take his birthright? Is that the way? You could also argue the opposite. Let him get them and help him do tshuva. We believe people can do tshuva. After all, Esau was a son of 
Yitzchok and Rivka, just like Yaakov was. The only place where I found, that I, at least I speak personally, an answer that wasn't just forced or bedieved and say, okay, there's a technicality that explains it, but a comprehensive explanation, because why did it have to be this way? If Hashem wants Yaakov to have blessings, so he could have made it easily that Yitzchak appreciated Yaakov, gave him the blessings. If he wanted him to have the first birthright, he should have given it. And why is it coming in such a deceptive fashion, which only feeds into all the anti-Semitic arguments? Oh, yeah, you're very honest people. Look, you're honest, great, honest. Ishtam Yeshiva Olim. The Posik says, Ishtam Yeshiva, you're honest, sincere, wholesome person, scholar, is busy maneuvering and conspiring to, to, to blackmail his brother, to deceive his father, steal blessings. Why did it have to be this way? If it was meant to be, it could have been very straightforward. Yaakov could have been come out first. Why does he come out second? And of course, it all goes back to the very mystery of the very birth of Esau. What is this? Yeah, Yitzchok and Rivka, Mamish, Ovis and Imois, Hen Hen the holiest people. Yitzchok born, first person circumcised at age eight, days old. How's it possible? Yaakov, we understand. Where does this Esau come from? So clearly, the whole thing begs deeper explanation. When you look at Siddhis, Siddhis explains the true story. So even though everything that happens in the parsha happened in actuality, Amy creates a midday pshute, it's all literal. But we know Tere midaberes belyenim and meramezes betachtenim. The story of Tere is the blueprint for life. Alpayim shana kodma Tere le'elim. The Tere precedes existence. It is the blueprint, as the Medr says, or like an architect as a blueprint. And a blueprint min, means it precedes the structure of existence. So whatever we have in the Torah, the characters, the personalities, the narratives, the stories, the events, the encounters, are really telling us a spiritual story of God's great plan. And therefore, we'd say Torah is Melosh and Herat. It's not a history book. It's not just a book of stories, even of inspiration, even a book of laws. It's a book that reflects God's mind. So when we look at all the events that actually happened, they all carry deeper stories. And they're all the personalities, the archetypes that are here within us right now. So we're not just learning stories that happened back then. They're happening right now in our lives. So yes, there was a time that was actually happened on earth with these people's names. And they lived in a very particular period, in a very particular location. So what is the story here? And when you know that, then you can understand the deeper meaning behind it all. You also understand why we're told. Because even though it happened, why do we need to hear all of this and then have to deal with the controversy and try to find an answer to all these questions? So the Pesach says what the story is. That there are two nations within you. Which means there are two type of personalities. There are two type of personalities within you and within each one of us. And they're twins, which means they have similarities and in many ways are equals, given the equal strengths. And what are these two entities? Open up a Tanya and you'll see. The Yaakov and Esav, with each, each one of us is the Nefesh Alekis and the Nefesh Abamis, the divine soul and the animal soul. Both are God created. And the animal soul is not an evil soul. It's a divine so with a particular purpose. Yes, its focus is on self and being more the warrior that tames the elements. 
in order to refine the world, the material world, you need to have a certain battle going on. And that battle is to turn, transform the mundane into the holy. And then there's another soul, Nefeshaldikis, the divine soul, corresponding to Yaakov, that represents the bringing into this world everything that's divine. And there will be a struggle between these two. The goal is they join together and the divine soul educates the, spirit, the, the animal soul to understand even on its terms, its purpose is to enter the world and engage on a, even on an animalistic level in eating and drinking and sleeping and everything that we do in this physical world, but for divine purposes. But until that is done, there, there's a, a potential and actual battle between the two. The Muhammad between the Nefeshalikis and Nefeshabam is that each one of us has. And the goal is not that to remain in battle. The goal is not that it should forever be that. The goal is to make a peace and a harmony. And ultimately there will be, like we say in, in Shema, Bechol Avavcha, Bechshnei Yitzarecha, that with both Yitzar, both the Yitzar Tev and the Yitzar Hara, the Nefeshalikis and Nefeshabam should join together. But that takes work, as we, know, as we know. So you have the story of the battle, and you have the story of how you deal with this battle. So how do you deal with this battle? How does a Nefeshalikis and Nefeshabam contend with an animal soul that has different interests? Like he says in chapter 9 in Tanya, the, animal, the divine soul, is, which dwells primarily in the mind, is reflective and focuses on transcendence, and connecting to higher purpose. The animal soul, primary place of dwelling is in the left side of the heart, focuses on its impulsive emotions of, what, of its own needs. So how could you even, they will never join together. How could they join together? They have very two different agendas. So the answer, briefly, that that's the whole purpose of Avedis Hashem. And that's why this Pasha is so critical. It tells us our story and tells us the solution. So a good way to explain it is with a moshal, an example from the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov gave an example. This was, the question was asked, why chassidim say l'chaim and drink mashka? But the truth is, on a broader scale, it also explains this story, and it also explains a very basic, obvious question. Ask anyone, Judaism, what is it you associate it with? Most people, without thinking, food. Chanukah, we eat latkes, and Purim, Hamantashen, and Kreplach. And Pesach, of course, is a whole series menu, a whole Seder menu, and all the special foods and specialty items. Ashvuas, dairy, blintzes, cheese. Rosh Hashanah, we dip an apple in honey, we eat sweet foods. And even Yom Kippur, we're obsessed with food. We just don't eat it. And not at all. And not every Yom Kippur, we eat double. So what's going on here? Shabbos, Chont, Kugel, Kishke, Kneidlach. For some reason, a lot of the foods begin with a K in English. So what is, what, what, this is Judaism? This is what God wants? So yes, it's a mitzvah, but what does it mean? So Baal gives this analogy, briefly. A king, the famous analogy always in the Medrash, a king and, a, and, his, and his heir, his son. The king is aging and realizes that he has to prepare for a transition, that his son will take over after he's passed on, after 120 years. But he realizes that his son, growing up in the palace, He's not really groomed and trained to be the sensitive leader necessarily. Everything in his life was provided for. He had caretakers. Didn't have to earn anything. 
And he wanted his son to be compassionate and sensitive. So he decides, as painful as it is, I'm going to send my son away from the palace for a while. Let him live among his future subjects. The, main, the, the mainstream, regular folk, regular people. And let him earn his own way without any special treatment. Of course, it's difficult to do, but he does it. He calls his son in and says, I'm sorry to say this, but this is only for your good. Son obediently accepts it. Father says to him, but remember, never forget where you're coming from and why I'm sending you. It's not just to send you. It's in order to prepare you to bring out deeper strengths that when you'll be a leader, you'll be a truly kind, compassionate, wise leader, understanding the needs of the people. I will send you to remember, I will send you several times a year a letter to remind you who you are. Anyway, the day comes, the sun is sent off to a far country, the edges of the empire. No one knows who he is. And he starts living his life there. And of course, what happens? Starts getting used to it. And he assimilates his ways. But as his father promised, he sends a letter. So though the son has forgotten a lot of what happened, and even why he was sent, his father sends a letter. Ah, gets a letter from his father. What a simcha, what a joy. He wants to celebrate. The problem is, how do you celebrate? Nobody will understand why he's celebrating. If you start saying, I'm really the king's son, They'll either think he's crazy or they'll be uh, offended. So he comes up with an idea. He throws a kiddush, a party. Free food, free drinks, free cocktails for everyone. Of course, everybody joins. You get a free meal. And they're celebrating because they got a free meal. And meanwhile, he's celebrating because he received a letter from his father. Says the Baal Shem Tov, The king is God. The child is each one of us. The soul living in heaven is in the palace. Everything is easy, comfortable. The child doesn't have any challenges. There's no health. There's no parnosal livelihood. There's no issues of, 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 uh, that need therapy and so on and so forth. That's not what the Baal Shem Tov said. I'm just making it a little more contemporary. <clears throat> so the God says, I want the Neshama to come down to this world, a hostile world, a world which is not easy and where the Neshama will forget its source. And we'll have to deal with an animal soul and with everything that, and a body and a physical world. And there I wanted to learn how to rise to the occasion and reveal its true, its true nature, the soul's true nature. And that's what happens. The soul is sent to this world. And we're made to forget, the Gemara says, that upon birth we're made to forget all the terror that we learned in our mother's womb. And that's that. However, Shem says, I will send a letter several times a year. Three times a year will be Sukkis, it'll be Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkis, a Shabbos every week, and then the other holidays, to remind the Neshama why you're there. But there's a problem. The animal soul that the Neshama now, the Nefesh Alekis, resides with, is not interested in, uh, in, in God's letters. This has his own agenda. So Hashem says, feed the Nefesh Abamis, give it free cocktails and a meal and everything it needs. The Nefesh Abamis will celebrate because it's eating, it's eating great food. And meanwhile, the Nefesh Alekis celebrates and dances with his own brother, with his twin. The Nefesh Abamis, because it's God's letter. Because the Nefesh Abamis doesn't understand yet what spirituality is in its pure form, you have to teach it on its terms. So the Nefesh Alekis has to dress up in the garments that the Nefesh Abamis could understand. 
This is what Chassidus says to explain godliness in Levushe HaSoge, in the garments of understanding of the animal soul, that even the animal soul can appreciate. How does the animal soul appreciate things? Through food, through drink. Just like when you teach children, the Rambam says, you give them candies, you give them sweets, you give them toys. You give them something that they appreciate, so they associate Teireh with something of value. I, we could say, one second, for toys? No, it's God's Teireh and mitzvahs. You should just do it for that reason. So the Rebbe explains, no, in that sweet, in those candies, really is the deep spiritual sweetness, but the only way you can explain it to a child is like through a muscle. Is a muscle deception? No. A muscle is explaining the idea in terms that the student can understand or the child can understand. So that's exactly why it happened, happened this way. Yaakov and Esau, it, it, it was, the whole purpose is to enter a world where there's an Esau and there's a battle. Esau is the warrior. And Esau is given strengths that even Yaakov himself doesn't have. And Yaakov recognizes that. The only way is to give the Nefesh is what it needs to appreciate it. Now, Nefesh is at the moment may not understand that I'm eating food and really it's lying, lying and this is lying something deeper. So Yaakov never stole the blessings from, uh, or, the, or the birthright from Esau. It was for both of them. At the end of the day, the Nesham and the Guv, the soul and the body, and the divine soul and the animal soul need to work together. And that's why Taka says in Vayishlach, when they, re, when they reunite Yaakov and Esau. And Esau says, come live by my, side by side. And Yaakov realizes that Esau, even though initially he thought Esau was already ready for Mashiach, that Esau was kranizbarer, Chassidus says, that he was already refined, then he sees he's not. So Esau, Yaakov says, we're not ready yet. You go ahead, we'll go slowly. But the day will come, like Rashi says, he's not lying, the day will come, and we will join. And the body and the physical world will be refined enough to be able to live in peace side by side with the divine soul. So the whole purpose of the birthright and the blessings was not to deprive Esau of it, it's to give it to him. But a body on its own with all its power, Chassidus says, the Yesha Nivra, the very physical rooted in Yesha Miti and Atzmus, doesn't know it yet. That's the problem. So you need the Neshama to guide it. And then when they join together, the Guftaka has something to give to the body. Neshama Nezunis Mina Guf, Chassidus says, the Neshama is actually fed by the body. But first the soul has to feed the body. On its terms. So that briefly is the story. And now you understand all the different details. Why it had to happen this way. Why it wasn't deception. Even though ostensibly it seems that way. And why Yaakov dressed up in garments of Esau. What does that mean? Because that's exactly what we need to do. We dress it up in the garments. And the other questions as well. But there's still the question that remains. Why didn't Yitzchak know this? Why did Rivka and, Esau and, and Yaakov not explain it to him? Because that's also part of the story. Yitzchak saw, Yitzchak is, Ki'ato Avinu, we will say, and Yitzchak, Yitzchak saw the future. He had a vision of the future where Esau and Yaakov are completely in harmony. And that's what he had to have. Because you want to also know that the goal at the end of the day is not pushing aside Esau, but actually revealing the deepest strengths in Esau. And that's what he focused on. So whether he consciously knew what was going on, you know, you can argue he did. Not that he played along would not be the right word, but he understood everything has its role. And in truth, that's what he saw. He saw Esau, he saw Esau of the future. And he was supposed to see that. And Rivka being the mother who's closer, the nurturer, and of course Yaakov, they were involved in the actual bitter. 
So that explains that as well. And it also explains why Yitzchak could not suddenly say, no, I'm going to give the blessings to Esau. Those blessings belong where they belong. Once Yaakov took them, it's not like you could say, you know what, I'm, I'm taking them back. And the truth is, whether Yitzchak again was aware or not aware, the blessings were for Esau too. Now, Esau didn't appreciate it yet. He didn't understand it. And in time, he would. Which is, of course, the body doesn't understand when you're giving it the free cocktails and the meal, that it's, for, it's really teaching it about godliness, except it has to be dressed up in this fashion. This also explains why Yitzchak was not spared the pain like Avram was. Avram was a grandfather, and Avram already filled his main shlichus. So the Ebershah didn't want to see what happens to Gashmis. Yitzchak had to be part of this narrative. If Yitzchak was not there, it was just to protect him, all this would not have happened the proper way. Yitzchak is the one that has to be mamshul the brachas. And the brachas also of la'asid lovi. Kol Yitzchak li. Loshen Yitzchak from Loshen Asid in the future. So Yitzchak had to be part of this whole story. So this is a brief synopsis of it. And when you think about it, really the lessons are tremendous. Because it's literally teaching us how to live our lives and understand the challenges and the battles. And the response has to be not through avoiding the battle, but to know how to wisely engage in this battle. That you speak to your animal soul on its terms so it can cooperate. Not just to go to war, let's just butt heads. And ultimately, there will be the transformation, like it says at the end of the story, of Vayishlach. The Rebbe, interestingly, Vayeshev, Tafshinun Beis, when he spoke about the Alter Rebbe opposing France versus Russia, compared it exactly to Yaakov and Esav. That there was a time where the Western world, as the Alter Rebbe was sensed, was not ready yet. We were not ready to enter there. We'd be overwhelmed. And then there's a time that now we can transform the Western world, Tsarfas, as he explains there, which comes from Edom, which is connected to Esau. So it's stages in the Aveda. Look at that sikha, it'll add to the whole story that we're discussing here. What was the yeshiva of Shem and Ever? Talk about that Yaakov learned in Shem and Ever. Avram, it says, learned in the yeshiva of Shem and Ever. Yitzchok, Yaakov spent time there and... Um, it even explains why certain years are not calculated exactly, don't seem to add up, because you spend time in the yeshiva of Shem and Neighbor. Now, Shem, of course, is son of Noyach. So what, was it a brick-and-mortar building with full-time staff and students, or was it just Shem and Neighbor hosting travelers in their home tents and philosophizing and teaching them some teda here and there during their visit? <laughs> Next line, I don't know. You want to write it? It's a joke? Okay. Was the tuition as high as many of our modern-day yeshivas? The last part of my question about tuition was meant to be a joke, just to lighten the mood and add comic relief. Okay, good. Yeah. Now, I don't think there was tuition, and definitely not in any prohibitive way. So it's actually a mysterious thing, this yeshiva of Shem and Ever. But essentially, of the different madrashim, the summation of it all is that, remember, even though the Torah was not given till 26 generations, close to 2,500 years, year 2448, from creation, 26 generations from creation, from Adam and Chava, but as we, Gemara says, that others learned the Torah even before it was given. Adam and Chava were aware. And you have Sheva Mitzvah's Bnei Neyach that were given as well. Adam and Chava were given six, that's why it's called Sheva Mitzvah's Bnei Neyach, because seven, the Ever Menachai was added later because Adam and Chava didn't have Ever Menachai, they were not supposed to eat animals altogether. 
So bottom line is that the, the mandate and the purpose of creation, God infused in the human race, or else you couldn't expect them to, how could, they, how could you ask them to be responsible if you're not telling them don't murder? Why was there a mobble? So there was no question, there was an oral tradition being passed on. Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever was basically the torchbearers throughout that period that passed on some of the truths that went from Adam Machava to, she, to, to their children, to Sheis, and then to the later children, to Enesh, and so on. And ultimately to Noyach and Noyach's children, and then to Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. So though we don't know all the details, exactly how it took place, but definitely, especially these individuals were all seekers. So it wasn't, it was besides their own search, they had people, wise people. So Yeshiva Shem was that, clearly that wise, I guess like you can say uh, university. That was the divine university that was teaching some of these ideas that's passed on. How much they learned there and exactly what the curriculum was, I could not find spelled out. But clearly they all learned there and they all, they all derived, obviously, help in their own journey and their search. And it had the tradition that came from the generations before. If anybody has more information on this, please share and I will turn and share it with the Elam, with the audience. Okay. Next question. This is a follow-up. Since we're talking this week, last week's Pashtas, Shaduchim Chayasara told us the Rebbe always talks about these chapters also. Shlichus, you see them in these chapters. The Shlichus of Eliezer. Shlichus at the end of Teldus, where uh, Yaakov is sent off by his parents to go find the Shidduch. So following up, last week's discussion was this. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was moved by a letter you read last Sunday by someone having difficulties finding a Shidduch and asking for advice on how to keep positive that Hashem has a Bashert for him. I struggled in a similar way for many years, and finally I got married a few months ago. Beautiful. I want to share what I did differently this past year to succeed over previous years when, when I did not succeed. I was born in New York City and lived in Crown Heights for many years, but I never felt I belonged there. I am an artist, and I felt it was difficult to express myself, and my art surrounded by and my art by surrounded by the noise, crime, traffic, pollution, angry, damaged people in New York City. Okay, that's quite a blanket statement that you're making. I'm saying that. Okay, and I found when I would come home from work, I was often miserable and angry at myself. Obviously, in that state of mind, I wasn't a good candidate for a shidduch. So last January, I quit my job and moved upstate to Woodstock, New York a town full of hippies, artists, and musicians. Finally, I felt like I was where I belonged. Without the pressure of inner city life, I wasn't stressed out, and I became a happier person overnight. Having a private driveway and no parking tickets every morning also helped. And a month later, I met my future wife. We dated a few months and got married August 1st. I truly believe this big change in my life made the difference, which changed my life for the better and made me a better, happier person and a good candidate for a shidduch. I'm not suggesting to this person or to anyone, um, to this person who wrote this letter or to anyone, that you should leave Crown Heights and move upstate, but he should make positive changes that work for him and his lifestyle. And every few months that go by without a successful shidduch should inspire him to make even more drastic changes. 
a new job perhaps, new social circles, maybe some new hobbies, maybe take a series of classes and learn something interesting and new. The point is to do something different and never give up hope, and with God's help, he will be in the right place at the right time and find his bashert, and may they have healthy children and an abundance of parnas. Very well stated, and I really firstly appreciate your sharing your own personal story, and it's very inspiring. I couldn't agree more. Mishana Mokka, Mishana Mazel. You change your place physically or spiritually or psychologically or emotionally, it, it changes Mazel. And yes, if nothing changes, nothing changes. One of the easiest ways to create change is to do new things, new friends, new social circles. So I totally agree with this. And of course, prayers and everything else. But you don't want to keep doing the same thing you did because then you'll ha- usually have the same thing you had. So I thank you for that. Very moving to hear from you. And uh, I mean, when I read this, this is what uh, my life Chassidus Applied is all about. It's about being in a public forum where we can speak openly, even about issues that are not so comfortable and maybe even painful, issues that others, whatever reason, avoid and talk openly. Sometimes we have an answer. Sometimes we have a partial answer. Sometimes it's just talking that helps and expressing ourselves and knowing that others are going through similar situations. So I'm very, very moved when I read this because, number one, I feel that this, this program is achieving something and that people are reading and listening and, uh, and, uh, and not only that, but even suggesting and sharing their own story with ideas and thoughts. Very good. So since we're talking about comments and feedback, here's a comment. <laughs> I always like the comments. They're very interesting. Um, I feel if someone asks a question that inspires Torah dialogue, that the question itself is Torah, and the person who asks it gets a mitzvah for Torah learning. Yep. Therefore, if someone writes a question to this form, my life, the questioner gets a mitzvah, Rabbi Jacobson gets a mitzvah for reading and answering, and the audience gets a mitzvah for listening to discussions of Torah. Okay. May God Almighty bless all those who inspire Torah dialogue, discuss Torah dialogue, and listen to Torah dialogue with overflowing blessings for good health, healthy children, and abundance of Parnassa. Well, so thank you so much for that. I totally agree. And uh, take, for the, taking the effort to write that and to say it. And I encourage everyone that's listening, this is a forum. Go to chassidusapply.com. You can submit any question. Nothing is off limits. The only challenge I have, frankly, is there are too many questions for me to be able to keep up in a timely way, so I have to keep catching up. But you know, that's a good problem because it means people care and engage. But I just don't want anyone to feel that your question is ignored, because it's not. I read every question personally. Try to bunch them together sometimes to cover some things together. Try to address timely things. There's no real rule. But remember, the questions are all anonymous and confidential, so I have no idea who they are, and I don't want to know. If you want me to know who you are, you can write it in the forum, but it's not necessary. I'd rather talk about it without any such um, biases. Not that there is a bias, but you know what I mean. So the point is that um, please use this forum. I'm honored to be able to share whatever I'm blessed to know. And things that I'm not so familiar with, I bring up as well. And hopefully get feedback from from you. And it's been a very uh, glorious and gratifying journey. Now, eight years since we began. Like it has, we're at episode 377. So eight years will be uh, 400. Yeah, approximately 50 weeks a year. So, yes, a beautiful journey. So, 
Let's talk now, we're going to move to another topic. This is a question that's been coming up over time. And sometimes that's what I do. I wait, I see. Sometimes you see a question repeated, different people. And it seems that's the right time to address it. And I'll just bring them all together into one discussion so it's not scattered. Now you can always go back to the archives on chassidahsupply.com and you can search by keywords or tags. And actually in the YouTube version of each video, you can also timestamps you can go find exact topic you don't need to listen to the entire thing it's like timestamps you just click on the topic go straight to that place pretty easy to find the topics and uh, someone just told me the other day that they listen every week but because of time they listen double they hope i hope that they just wanted to tell me they either they hope i don't mind that they listen to my voice double speed so i said no whatever it is so therefore an hour becomes a half hour <laughs> Okay, that's efficient. Good. I listen to myself once in double speech. It's, it's, it's quite interesting to hear yourself uh, twice as fast. Um, okay, you could also slow down, by the way, but that I'm not suggesting because what's the benefit of that? So this topic is about women and Taylor. So there's a bunch of questions that have come in over time. Let me just address a few of them. Woman of the Tater. Why does the Tater rarely mention the girls in the families? We are told that Adam, Noyach, Avram, as well as others had daughters, yet the Tater really mentions it and almost never mentions their names other than Dina and according to some Bakel, Avram, Berich, Avram, Bakel, that she was a daughter. It seems very male-centric. Well, in the case where the reality is that Yaakov had 12 boys and one girl, Dina, even though it does say Midrashim that every Shevet had also a sister. There in the Pasuk Psukim at least, so Dina is an individual, she could understand there were more boys, there were simply physically more boys. Um, and when it comes to Dina, there's a whole story in the Torah about it. So, so the Torah is clearly not uh, discriminating against the women. And you have different stories, the stories of Miriam, the stories of Yecheved, and uh, you have Sarah. So I don't know if you could say it's male-centric. The fact is, Adam and Chava had this Adam and Chava, male and female, he created them. So it's very clear, male and female. There's two soulmates. They had two sons, Hevel and Cain, Cain and Hevel. Did they have daughters? The Midrashim say, yeah. So you could ask, why does the Torah not talk about it if they did have daughters? I don't look at it as male-centric because when you look at the Torah as a divine blueprint, you have to look at it as a very equal and God-created men and women, as I said, the human race is male and female. What you could say is, just like the same question, why God is referred to in the male, he. Why not he, he as in, he, I didn't mean he and who in Hebrew, but he, who as in male means him, not her. So even though we know that Elokus itself, godliness, has a female component, Shechina is Malchus, Nekeva, Nukva, and Kuchabrichu is the Zohar, Zoh. So you have two dimensions. And that's from where evolves the two different energies called the masculine energy and the feminine energy. And every male has feminine energy and every woman has masculine energy. So why then do we refer to God more as, as He? Well, you can go back to the que- another similar question. Generally, even in the modern culture, in most cases, a woman marrying a man, she changes her surname, her last name to the husband's name. Why? Why can he change it? So without getting into any of the abuse of male dominance, and there's plenty of it, 
and I'm acknowledging it. If you look in a pure environment, the role of a male in general, the role of a female, using Hasidic terminology, one is in, internal intimate energy, prima, that the glory, the dignity of the queen, the princess, is internal. It's intimate. And then there's expressive energy, divine expressive energy. The man's role is to conquer. We're talking about in a healthy way of conquering. He takes the initiative. That woman can't take an initiative? Of course she can. She's an equal in every way, like I said, in souls. But her role is different. So the problem is that men have abused their power. So women say, one second, you're taking dominant, you're taking initiative. I want to take initiative. But if it was in a world of bittel, where both knew exactly what their role is, there's nothing wrong. The man goes out because he's physically stronger and his energy is such to tame the elements. He can chop down more wood in an hour than, uh, than the woman can. Not because he's superior. On the contrary, the woman can do something that the man can't do, like the Gemara says. He brings in the, the grain and she turns it into challah, into food that you can eat. You can't eat grain. He brings in the wool or the flax or the different elements, that different items, and she turns it into clothing. So she turns, she creates the home environment, the nurturing element. The man provides the seed, but where does the child grow and is nurtured nine months in the mother's womb? Why is that the case? Because their energies are different. So once you recognize that, then generally speaking, where there's more prominence doesn't mean there's more power. The Rebbe once told a woman who said that she's on shlichus with her husband and their partners, and the Rebbe emphasized your partners, and she says, yeah, but Rebbe, when people come Friday night, even though I do all the work, the compliments go to my husband. I, if I give him, he should get compliments. They don't really appreciate always. And the Rebbe said, you're right, they should. But remember, this world is superficial. They appreciate externals. You see someone come into a house, you don't see, they say, what a beautiful foundation this house must have. They'll say, the curtains are beautiful, the furniture, the chandelier, the paintings on the wall, the room. Without the foundation, the whole building wouldn't stand. But foundations are invisible. So again, they, you deserve the compliments, but you have to remember. It's a very fascinating response if you think about it. We, yes. So in a certain way, male energy is more external. It has a role to play. Because it, as I said, tames the elements. It conquers the world. It transforms it. But there's something about intimate internal energy that's not appreciated in this world. And you could say, therefore, that when you talk about giluyim, you'll see more male names. And etzem, the woman. And etzem is usually quieter. Generally like the unsung heroes. This is not justifying anyone not appreciating. And it's definitely not in any way giving, I don't want to even give it any, even a smidgen of suggesting that abuse and dominance and control is, is at all acceptable. That's actually all part of the curse. Hu yimshelbach. But it's just to put things into context. So next question. Many radical Left-wing women criticize the Torah as a patriarchal system that keeps power only for men. But isn't it true that many, there were many female leaders in our history? Take Miriam, for example. Wasn't she considered a co-leader among, along with Moses and Aaron? And when she passed away, the entire nation mourned because she was a well-respected leader. And when she passed away, it was considered a huge communal loss. Absolutely right. And my, my, whatever I responded to the previous question applies here. It's true that men may have abused, not may have, did abuse the system. 
and that culture in our society in general not uh, is 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 uh, patriarchal and there's a male hierarchy, and you see people complaints in the corporate world and politics. Things have changed a bit, but from a Torah point of view, from the first pasuk Zochar Nekeva Bareisam tells you it's equal. Both are one with the divine image, and one is completely not complete without the other. And they have two different roles, as I explained. In my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, I actually explain in a chapter called Women and Men in more detail some of these ideas. So the key is not to respond to the distortions. That's not how you deal with things. It's to go back to the roots of what the real issue is and correct it from there. Correct our perception of men, male and female. Not how people have distorted it and then say, okay, since they distorted it, let's distort it even more in response. That's the bottom line. In that context, the next question is, why don't women wear a yarmulke? So, interesting, someone asked this question to the Rebbe, one of his secretaries, and I will read the question. This uh, secretary is writing to the Rebbe and says that, um, that Tanya, chapter 35, brings the reason why a kishirosh, a yarmulke, is only for men. In the name of the Zoyak, even the Shkinta Sharia Reshe. Because the Shkinta rests on the head. And therefore, it was a Yamaka in respect to that. In the Poskim, it's broad. This is all this, this secretary writing to the Rebbe, Rabbi Groner. Writing to the Rebbe, it says there's another reason given, because it helps a Yiddish Shemaim. It's like we're always reminding you that above your head, there's a, there's a God, there's a heaven. Just as an aside, I once heard that uh, Nachman Yosef Bialik, the poet and uh, linguist, was once walking in Meir Sharim, and uh, he was a person who went learned to yeshiva. He was a scholar, but he had uh, wandered in his own way. And he was walking in Meir Sharim, and he sees one of the Yerushalmi kids and says in Yiddish, "Ingelav, who is a shul? Child, where is their shul?" Now he was walking with an uncovered head. So the child says to him, a shul is not for Eden, nish for goy. A shul is only for Jews. So he says, He was looking for a shul to say Kaddish for his father, I believe. How do you know I'm not Jewish? He says, because you're walking without a head covering. Skull cap, whatever you call it, yarmulke. Which comes from the word yurei melech, yarmulke, yurei melech. So being a poet, being a real well-versed in Tanakh, he says, Ingele, boy, little boy, kippas hashamayim. The whole heaven is my yarmulke, my kippah. Heaven is like a kippah, like a canopy. And the boy answers, Tzu grace yarmulke for azaklenikop. It's too big of a covering for such a small head. <laughs> I thought it was very cute and interesting. I don't know if Bialik responded. Kaponim, so you see here these reasons. So he, Rabbi Gorna continues that these both reasons that the Shekhinah rests above the head and, and to add Yerushamayim is also shaykh to women and, and girls. And also, he regards even women who wear a shaykh. It's also the same idea. Because <clears throat> the shaykh is regarding the hair. But you still need to have that reminder. So he says like this. And especially since we say, like at the end of Eshes Chayel, Eshes Yiddish Hashem, Hit Tisalo. 
that you should look for a woman of Yerush Hashem to be to praise and to uh, glorify. So why don't they wear a, a yarmulke? And he wrote to the Rebbe that he asked this question by Kama Vakama, by a number of people. On the word number of people, the Rebbe wrote, how many seconds or how many moments did these Kama Vakama, these people, with all due respect to them, spend on contemplating the answer to this? In other words, the Rebbe is saying, did they really give it thought? And then the Rebbe answers. But he answers, I'm reading exactly the Rebbe's language. Simple answer you can explain, and we're prefacing another big question. Why in general? Let's go the other way around. Why should a man need special protection? Because he brings there not to walk four amis, four cubits, four measures. Even for four amis, why does a person need a special shmir, a special protection in Obafrat and specifically It says that person doesn't sin except if he has a moment of insanity. So why would we assume he's always having insanity that he needs this protection? Bahabir says the Rebbe, the explanation. The Ebrister made instilled the nature of a man and commanded him that he should be kavish, like I said before, to conquer. That's his role. And to pursue and to be dominant over which is hepech de bitl v'yirachulu. That very element, that nature, on its own, could be very much opposite and tethetical to bitl and yiras Hashem. In other words, it's not because the Yitzhahara is there, but because a person is in that mode, so that's why he needs to have a special care. So yiras miyachedes, bavornan. Bavornan means to address, to preempt. Tivoy, his very nature of a chulu, the teva v'tzivi hanal, and this teva and the command, because a man is supposed to, supposed to do that when it comes to shaduchim. He's commanded, you go out there and pursue it. Don't we just wait, be passive. You have to be proactive. She says, v'teva v'tzivi hanal harihu rak be'ish kedroshes razal. And this nature and this command is only by a man, a male, like razal explained in many places. That's the Rebbe's answer. So you can take so many things from this and learn. Woman doesn't have that dominant feature per se. This does not mean that a woman cannot be dominant and cannot be proactive, but it's in a very different way and doesn't have the need to so-called balance and counter this natural instinct of control, dominance, aggression. That's the Rebbe's answer. Okay. So now, let us um, let me see. Oh, there's plenty more. There's always more. So let me go to Chassidus uh, question, and we'll conclude with that. Which is also connected to the parsha, and we addressed it somewhat. But here's a more Chassidish language. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I'm a big fan of your Sunday class. Thank you for what you do. I have a question. In Chassidus, we have a concept that the higher something is, the lower it falls. 
Yes, the higher something is, the lower it falls. As an example given for it, I'm adding this like a wall. So if you see stones fall over the wall, the farther they fall, the higher they were. Stones lower part of the wall won't fall as far. Continuing what he writes. When applied to Esau, we are taught he had the ability to sink to such depths of evil because his neshama came from a much higher source than average people. Correct. And he's talking mushrish and toyu, higher than tikkun. We, I didn't say it in those words before, but the same idea. So knowing this, could it have been a mistake for Yaakov to steal the blessings? Perhaps if Esau got the blessings and chose to do tshuva and utilize the blessings, he could have accomplished much more good than Yaakov because Esau's soul came from a greater source. In a way, was Rivka and Yaakov giving up on Esau and saying he crossed certain lines and can never do tshuva? So therefore, let's salvage what we can and take the blessings? In general, it probably is unfair and untrue to say that anyone is so evil they can't do tshuva. In the Talmud, they tell the story of Elazar ben Derdaya, who was told he crossed the line did not have, and did not have the ability to repent. Hearing that, he became so upset that he cried, he cried out until he passed away, and then a baskel, a voice from heaven, came, went out, and said that his tshuva was accepted. So do we have a precedent to confirm that even people who are very evil can properly repent? Always we do. So could Esav had a chance to repent if he chose to? Another questioner writes, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, we are taught a concept in Chizis that the higher something is, when it falls, it falls lower. This example is sometimes used to show that the neshama of Esav comes from a very high source. My question is if this example is only applicable to Jewish souls, or it can also apply to wicked Gentiles, and then someone could say the soul of Stalin came from a very high source. So briefly, in answering first question, going back to what we said earlier, Chassidus explains that the Yesha Nivra, the Guf Gashmi, in some way is rooted higher than the Neshama itself. Because the Neshama is a Gili Elikus. It may be concealed, but it's still essentially Chelik Elikam Mama. The Guf is the Yesha Nivra in the language of Egeres HaKedosh, it doesn't feel it has a source. That means it comes from Atzmus, Mitzus, Matzmus, Hulavadi is the only one that can create something. So then, is the body higher than the soul? So why don't we just rely that the body figure it out? And what do we need the soul for? The answer is the body won't figure it out. It's blind. It's deaf. The fact is it's rooted there. But you need the Neshama and you need Teir Mitzvah to awaken that fact. Yes, Esau could have done Shuva. But to be able to appreciate Esau's power, and why indeed, like it says, the animal soul has a certain power the Nefeshulikiz does not have. Like an ox can, can plow a field much more, much more powerfully, much quicker than a human can. But you need the human to harness the ox. You need the Nefeshulikiz to harness the, soul, to the, the animal soul and to reveal this power. So Yaakov did whatever he could do, but still... The blessings Esau would not have been able to appreciate. Could he do tshuva? He could do tshuva, but that still doesn't finish the job. Esau was, Esau was ready to live with Yaakov, but he still didn't, wasn't ready, completely refined. That's the bottom line answer. So it says, for example, that Arizal says that we eat. Why do we eat? Mineral, vegetable, plant, and animal. And that sustains Ad Medabit. Medabit is superior, the human being. He's dependent on his sustenance for... For, for an, an lower species? The answer is because the lower species have a higher spark from Toyo. But the human being is the one that has to harness that. 
So you need the combination of both. The truth is, deeper even, tikkun is even rooted higher than toyu. But ostensibly, in the state of toyu has its power. The power of the material, the sparks in the material world, which has fallen lower, because it comes from a higher place. It is the neshama that is not from that higher place, bigoli, in a revealed way, that harnesses and elicits and draws those sparks out because they can't figure it out on their own. The neshama as it's working with Torah and mitzvahs. And then they both join together and you have the revelation of the neshama that's even higher and the power of etzem and atzmi in the, in the lower things. As far as, and that also answers as far as Stalin and others. The fact that it came very low down, yes, means that there's some power there. No question about it. But that doesn't mean that they can figure it out again on their own. And it doesn't justify their behavior. Let's make that very clear. Yes, Stalin caused major tzadis and gzadis. Did it elicit deeper mesidus nefesh from Eden? Yes, it did. But he's not getting credit for that exactly. So remember, it's not he was a higher level. There's something that God instilled in him and in other such terrible people, a power uh, in the umazeh that you have to say comes from a powerful place with the goal being that it should be transformed. Shvidosan, zuitakanosan. Destroying them is their repair, not elevating. And elevating that, that power to something in Gdusha, which is essentially saying like Padre led the Jews ultimately to experience Yitzhak Mitzrayim. As did Haman Purim. So we're, but, but we're not saying Haman is part of Purim the way he was. Shvidosan, he had to be hung. You have to destroy the evil and elicit the spark that's in it for Gdusha. So with that, we conclude this uh, week's episode 377 of My Life Chassidus Applied. Every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone should have a very Geula Dika, Rosh Kislev, and end of Chedesh Chesron. We should zeich to the Geula already, the full Geula Amitiz Vashlema, where we join together matter and spirit, and both Elam has a Dira Betachtenim. Tafke Tachtenim is the place where the Dira Loyla Atzmusei, but it's called Tachtenim. And we have to elevate it and reveal that atzim, etzim there, and that requires el to help us do that, which is the neshama, teda, mitzvahs, and then you have the best of both worlds. Tchis hamesim, the joining of neshama and guf, and the etzim begali in tachtenim in this world. Be blessed, a good week to everyone. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.